0: This was him, not me, because I'm with him. He was a, he's a tremendous talent. He's a Hispanic man. He went to Harvard, a great student. They choose their prey
1: carefully, and they choose the location of their predatory behavior carefully, which means there are going to be no witnesses.
0: I just knew that I was young. I, you know, needed the money. He was, I thought maybe just he needed companionship. I wasn't sure what it was. I really didn't ask any questions.
1: Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan with sex slave trader Jeffrey Epstein in prison his enabler Alex Acosta out as labor secretary, his pal Donald Trump struggling to pretend he and Epstein were never running buddies, and every one of Epstein's old cronies and co-conspirators running for the hills. Has anyone heard from Bill Clinton or Kevin Spacey lately? It's a nice time to be able to talk to Vicki Ward about what a psycho Epstein is without anyone telling us to shut up. Vicky has basically been the Javert of the Epstein stories, That—that that is, if Jean Valjean had enslaved girls and not stolen bread. Vicky is tireless, and she's been reporting on Epstein since 2002. After Epstein's arrest a few days ago, on July 6th, Vicky published a I Tried to Tell You So piece about trying to do an expose of Epstein for Vanity Fair 16 years ago. What happened is the substance of that piece was omitted by the magazine's then editor, Graydon Carter, who's friend, to put it mildly, to the rich and powerful. Just as we've done on this show with Trump's other cronies, Manafort, Michael Cohen, Felix Sater, we're gonna try to figure out how the extent of Epstein's corrupt sex slave syndicate went unchecked for so long, how Epstein got a pass, no, an active whitewash from so many in the media, the banking industry, politics, and publishing and academia. It was in academia that I encountered a pack of his enablers. This is yet another story about abuses of power in Trump times, and it's a big one. Joining me on the line is Vicki Ward. She's the author, most recently, of the great Kushner, Inc. Vicki, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thank you, Virginia. I was going to say, I wish it was under better circumstances, but I guess we're doomed to always talk about Jared Kushner, Donald Trump, and now Jeffrey Epstein.
0: It seems so. They're the untouchables, right? <laughs> the until untouchables. They're not. Until they're not. I really
1: like how you put it. It's also such a walk down memory lane, the history of your trying to report on Epstein and coming out about your experience trying to publish the story at Vanity Fair. And then I'm sure you saw this, but um, Kim Masters. Yeah. Yeah. Came to your defense and said, that sounds like exactly what would have happened with a story that Graydon Carter was nervous about at Vanny Fair.
0: Well, I have to tell you, Virginia, in the last two hours. Yes. Both one of the women, the one who was underage when Jeffrey Epstein, she claims assaulted her Mm -hmm. and her mother have phoned me and they are going to be going on the record to say that absolutely they were on the record as was the other sister and other people they're gonna they're gonna put their names to it and be out there with that
1: I cannot believe the courage of these women. I mean, even back in 2008, if they hadn't kept this up all this time, and even now backing you up in the story that you were writing in 2003, that, you know, we wouldn't have any of this. So why don't you, for listeners, just tell us about your experience trying to report on Jeffrey Epstein now more than, what is it, 15, 16 years ago?
0: Yeah, so the irony is... I was tasked with writing about Jeffrey Epstein because I was pregnant with twins. Huh. And um, he lived in New York. So it was meant to be a kind of easy assignment in that I wouldn't have to get on a plane and fly. Yes. The peg, if you like, was that people in New York's social circles, in, in affluent circles, um, knew about this man, but he was someone who kept out of the newspapers. Um, But that summer, the summer of 2002, he had most atypically been written about in page six, the gossip column of the New York Post, Mm -hmm. uh, because he had flown Bill Clinton on his plane to Africa. I think Kevin Spacey had been on the plane as well and, and some other celebrities. So that was the hook. And, you know, Graydon Carter, then the editor of Vanity Fair, said to me, you know, I've heard about this guy, as had I um for years yeah you know, everyone knew that he lived in Manhattan's biggest private residence it used to be a former school that mm-hmm. he lived very large that he had very influential friends that he had lavish dinner parties mm-hmm. um but no one knew where his money came from. He was also known to be a bit of an eccentric, a bit of a recluse. You know, he claimed to be a money manager, but he was always sort of seen in track pants. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that people did know was that there were at the parties where people like Prince Andrew would be, Mm -hmm. you know, Bill Clinton, host of uh, Nobel Prize winning academics, lawyers. There would be these very young women often foreign women who didn't even speak English, and to to the point that it was strange.
1: Yeah. It's amazing how everyone, how so many people ended up on the periphery of this or in the world of this. Jeffrey Epstein, along with many others, tried to acquire New York Magazine, where lots of journalists at the time wrote, and showed up at those parties, parties for Radar Magazine. I mean, these are, for you you and me, memory lane kind of things. But he was in people's peripheral vision in a weird way. And everybody liked New York Magazine's sort of idea that he was this, what do they call him, international man of mystery with lots of money. We don't know where he got it. And it seemed kind of, especially since he had this huge house that he didn't even seem to have the title to at the time, right? This giant house. He's a perfect Vanity Fair
0: story. Right. And in fact, the New York Magazine story that you mentioned it's interesting so once he learned because I phoned him <laughs> yes. that that I was going to be digging into him he put that uh New York magazine piece into motion in the hope that it would stop me doing what I was doing ah. And he, of course the interesting thing is that it was such a a hagiographic piece? Yeah, because it was sort of stage cast by you know by him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had he put all his friends up to say nice things about him. Yes. that you know it just made me even more determined to really try to dig and you know get to the bottom of what was really going on with this guy.
1: Okay, so pregnant Vicky Ward, <laughs> you go to meet him for the first time, and were you at Nine East Seventy First Street? The- yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah
0: I mean I should back up a little bit I mean the other thing that was really strange before I met Jeffrey I got a phone call an unsolicited phone call from James Kane who was then the CEO of Bear Stearns which mm-hmm. was then a fairly significant investment bank yeah and it's pretty odd as a reporter to get a phone call at the CEO of Investment Bank when you haven't phoned them mm-hmm. um, yes. and for Jimmy Kane, to then say, can you get over here this afternoon? I said, sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And then spends, you know, two or three hours talking to me, trying to charm me, showing me around the investment bank, but really stressing how brilliant Jeffrey Epstein was and what an important, you know, client he was of Bear Stearns and how brilliant his career there had been, which was, by the way, a complete lie. He'd only been there for five years and he'd had left... Under very ignominious circumstances, he was asked to leave, having committed a securities violation.
1: And wait, you just said a client of Bear Stearns. He was. He also was a. Wasn't he a managing partner by the time he left?
0: He was. I don't even know if he was a managing partner. He was, okay. but, but but he had only been there five years. And you know, depositions that I later found, um, se you know, S- depositions that he'd given to the Securities and Exchange Commission showed and actually other depositions in other cases, showed very clearly that he had been asked to leave over a securities violation. And that furthermore, in one of the depositions, it showed that the the investigators clearly thought that he had left with an an unusually large amount of money Hmm. for someone who was essentially fired. Wow. He was asked, did that have to do with the fact that he had knowledge of insider trading activity, possibly connected to Jimmy Kane and Ace Greenberg, the respective CEO and chairman of Bear Stearns Mm -hmm. at the time. And the reason that I bring that up is that one of the themes around Jeffrey Epstein is that he collects people and he collects information about people and that gives him leverage and power. And of course, one of the things is when you put prominent people in a room with very young girls, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows what information he then is privy to mm-hmm. and has over them. So anyway, I mentioned that as an aside. We then come to the... I mean, fairly soon after that, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Epstein invited me to his house, but it wasn't off the record. You know, everything was sort of off the record. <clears throat> he didn't really understand, actually, the difference between on the record and off the record. That was the other thing I discovered in, as I was sort of interviewing him. But I went to this house, which was so bizarrely decorated. It was, it was clearly intended to intimidate yeah um and you know you had the you had these eyeballs in the entry hall you had this extraordinarily tall ugly sculpture and then you when you went upstairs into a room he called the office which would have been most people would call a living room because there wasn't a computer or anything in it there was this stuffed poodle on top of the piano. And he Mm. said to me, you know, I want people to think what it means to stuff a poodle. It's a pretty weird thing to say. And the only book that was left, it was clearly let, you know, the whole thing had clearly been set up was uh, the Marquis de Sade.
1: (laughs) You know, I saw that in your piece, that mention, and just, I just want to stop for a second. So we're all trying to think of historical precedents for someone like this. And, you know, he his we know about his house in Palm Beach, where he... Um, you know, lured and kidnapped girls and took them. And there's there's video images of this on Miami Herald site, girls into this kind of Pepto-Bismol pink room, down staircases, little twisted hallways. And these kind of House of Horrors sort of BDSM dungeons that we do picture like the Marquis de That It's a very weird aesthetic. And as you say, very, very intimidating. And that house, I'll just add, because I poked around a little, I'm sure you probably know this, um, designed for the founder of Macy's Strauss around the turn of the century. At the same time, he designed a house ultimately bought by Klaus von uh, (laughs) Bülow in Rhode Island. And I mean, Klaus von Bülow, you know, almost certainly killed his wife, son, and also defended by Alan Dershowitz. So these larger-than-life Nietzschean figures who think that they need all this real estate and fleets of Gulfstreams and somehow intellectual credibility and lots of slaves. I mean, it's an astonishing return to, yes, that kind of sod nietzsche ideology. It's just horrifying.
0: Well, you know, what was so interesting, actually, Virginia, thinking about that is, and I I put this in the article at the time, was that sort of how inelegant he was about all of this, the bragging, you know, when he talked about the the Persian carpet being so large, it must have come from a mosque. And then when he described Mm. his ranch, which ridiculously named Zorro Mm. in New Mexico, and he said, oh, it makes the townhouse look like a shack it's not hmm. there's a it's not the way that actually people who've grown up with money or people who are used to having money speak it it's very rough and very crass.
1: yeah you know sometimes I think that the story here is that what a con man what a hustler I mean yeah no no
0: I think well that's well that I think is you know comes to the financial part of the story because yeah. Because what was so interesting is so he claimed, right, to be something that he wasn't, he was a complete con man. He claimed to be uh, this financial advisor to billionaires who he wouldn't identify. Well, <clears throat> there are some problems with that. Mm-hmm. You know, one, he didn't have a broker's license, so he wasn't able to actually trade. Hmm. Two, If you are doing the kind of financial maneuvers that he talked about in the market, there would be a footprint and there was none.
1: Yeah. Someone said there are like no footprint, like finance people saw no footprints in the snow that he didn't. Right. Yeah. He didn't make his career. You know, there are (laughs) records. There is an SEC. And also there are, you know, some professional standards even among traders and brokers.
0: You know, and third, he claimed to be sort of someone who could go in and act like a trust and estates lawyer for billionaires. But here's the thing. Trust. He wasn't trained as a lawyer. Yeah,
1: he doesn't (laughs) have a college degree.
0: You wouldn't need Jeffrey Epstein. You would phone Sullivan and Cromwell or a law firm that actually specializes in that. So, um, you know, lots of problems with this story. And what was interesting um, was actually something he said that I discovered in one of the depositions, I think from the late 1980s, where he gave a deposition in a small case and said that actually what he was really doing was finding stolen money for Hmm. people. And of course, if you know how to find stolen money, you also know how to hide it the reason I mention that is that there is there is this allegation that was made to me back then by someone called Stephen Hoffenberg, who I interviewed yeah. in jail. And Stephen Hoffenberg at that time was serving a 20-year jail sentence uh, for masterminding what was then the biggest Ponzi scheme yeah. in American history pre-Bernie Madoff. And Stephen Hoffenberg alleged that he had taught jeffrey everything he knew that jeffrey had been his business partner and then when he was indicted his assets should have been frozen and given to the government but this and this is hoffenberg alleging it that in fact jeffrey took his money and hid it so that is out there and i spoke to steve hoffenberg in fact i spoke to Steve Hoffenberg this morning wow and he is very clear, still, he's now out of jail, that that is exactly what happened. And he told me he knows where the money is. So to be continued.
1: So in the four hypotheses of how Epstein made his money, and they probably dovetail, we can go over them later. But one of them is, is a Ponzi scheme and then and then presumably hiding money means laundering it or parking it into dubious real estate ventures or putting it off so exactly let's go back to young well young 30s you know you think you're writing one of those and we've all done them more or less puff pieces where you know maybe <laughs> you say he's a little bit you know of a dick but you don't really say much against him and you talk about maybe you say it's a little vulgar the house but you name who the painters are and yeah. you know the sp- square footage we've all done this and this is very like Graydon Carter, Vanity Fair, talk magazine style piece, a yes. little starry-eyed about billionaires. But then carry on. I mean, you must have just, I know you, you had intense morning sickness, which is not incidental. You know, you're no. just... You're,
0: <laughs> I guess, yes, not incidental, because I was hungry, actually, <laughs> when I went there to for tea, and he ate all the food himself. That's and normally, bizarre. you know, I, I It happened to be the one time in my life where I really minded. Um, Yes. But no, what became apparent, this sort of aggressive effort on his part to control the narrative took a sort of sinister twist in that he started to discover that, you know, I was on to him financially. Mm -hmm. And actually, quite quickly, I was on to him about the women. Hmm. And he started then to say, you know, Vicky, if I don't like the way this piece goes, I'm going to have a witch doctor place a curse on your unborn children. And by the way, that's off the record. Ha ha ha! Well, I didn't think anything was particularly funny, and I didn't think it was, you know, to sort of add. And that's off the record. I don't think that was remotely okay.
1: I think you can definitely use it now here on TrumpCast. Right. What was he like? Because we keep hearing the stories of seductions by the victims who are risking a lot to come forward. Their stories are all so similar. And with the most recent one, who who talked to NBC News, the one who came from an art school and was uh, kind of picked up and then groomed over time, and then finally raped in that very house. What, did he have a a seduction? Did he have a line? Was he trying to win you over? Well, with
0: me, yeah. so with me, it was different because remember, I was very visible. You know, I was a Vanity Fair reporter. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't vulnerable in the way that these women were. And yet there was a veneer of, okay, Vicky, let's play chess. Hmm, You know, let's turn this into something fun, but it wasn't fun. Got it. And actually, he did, in his own way, try to push my buttons and make me vulnerable because he got my then husband's uncle, who happened to be his boss. So in other words, you know, I'm pregnant. This is the man responsible for my husband's paycheck. He got him to phone me to try to get me to back off. Okay, And he got this man, he's a guy called Conrad Black, who was a, a newspaper publisher at the time. Conrad Black started to ring around the offices of Vanity Fair as well to get, you know, not that he had any influence there, but to get to get to see an early draft. So that's like, you know, that is intimidation.
1: You who are just trying to wrap this before your children are born. Right. We're probably thinking, I mean, maybe I should just give up and write another version of the New York Magazine piece. Or maybe, no, and I know I this being you, you yes. made the opposite decision.
0: Exactly. The more aggressive he went, the more determined I was to punch back. Yeah. And not only that, I went on kind of parallel tracks. The financial piece, once I met with Steve Hoffenberg in jail, yeah. I was determined then. Then I went back you know, to look at all the various depositions that had been given around that case and track everybody down and really pieced together what had happened, and also really pieced together what had happened at Bear Stearns. So that was very, very time-consuming. At the same time, I had these two women. They had come to me through a source that I really, that I had known for 30 years. I really, really, well, not 30 years at that point, but I've now known for 30 years. I, I knew this person very well at the time. And these two women came to me, sisters, with their stories, and they were prepared to go on the record, and their stories were fairly blood-curdling, not least because they were so plausible and because they involved Jeffrey's then-girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, who I knew, mm. uh, you know, also born in England. Yeah. And what made sense was how sort of, um, particularly in the case of, of one, that Galen had been the one who made the phone call to her mother, inviting her to come and stay for the weekend. And of course, that had reassured the mother Um, and she'd been told the mother had been told that lots of other teenagers would be there and that Jeffrey was interested in sending them all on volunteer programs abroad, help them with their um, resumes. They all wanted to apply to sort of Ivy schools. And, you know, he presented himself as a philanthropist, but it was all made so much more palatable to an anxious mother by the presence of this very sophisticated, polished woman.
1: So I have a question here. Gillian Maxwell, daughter of the ultimately sort of disgraced fraudster publisher, Robert Maxwell, but she, you know, she cuts a figure. She's very chic. Honestly, I would have been afraid to cross her. I would have been afraid to take the stories of these young women against her. You know, she's right. she's a bit older than we are. She is like jet setter in the extreme. Right. And by now you have the head of Bear Steers, i still picturing you, you know, you're a small person, except now you're carrying twins. You have Jimmy Kane at Bear Stearns on your case. You have Conrad Black, your father-in-law, wanting Vanny Fair to call off the dogs or, you know, stop the story. And now you possibly have Ghislaine Maxwell. No, well, um, she did,
0: but breathing down my neck. Breathing Absolutely. down your
1: neck. I mean, that must have felt terrifying. And the story you were telling, and there wasn't, by the way, at all the support that we see now for, you know, Julie Brown in Miami, for Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey here doing these kind of stories. It was such an uphill battle. So carry on.
0: Right. No, it was an uphill battle. But I felt I felt that it was an amazing story. Yeah. And I was also very invested in these women because mm-hmm. I felt it was so brave what they were doing. I mean, the older sister had gone to the police um, back in the 1990s and not been believed, and I had followed up with the police and got nowhere. So I really felt like, okay, you know, this is this is our moment mm-hmm. to really sort of, you know, really do something meaningful. And, um, and I felt that they were so brave and, you know, they expressed their fears, but also they expressed their determination. I, I remember, you know, their mother saying to me, We've got to get this guy. Yeah. No matter how dangerous he is, we've got to get this guy. Yeah. So I wrote the draft with everything in it. I put the allegations to Jeffrey and Gillen, who did go berserk. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey then produced all this documentation he said look here's a letter from their mother which was typed and she said to me well that's very really interesting because you know what Vicky I don't pr- I don't possess a typewriter hmm, or computer he, uh-huh. yeah he uh, so I couldn't have typed him a letter all our conversations were on the telephone and um he he claimed that these were two women who um uh, had had crushes on him Mm-hmm. that had not been reciprocated. Mm-hmm. And he produced letters that that they then showed me were their handwriting and bore no resemblance to mm-hmm. the letters. And uh, meanwhile, though, what really sort of, I think, changed the narrative was that Jeffrey Epstein <clears throat> appeared in Graydon Carter's office.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I have an email from one of the fact checkers saying, oh, my God, He's here. I've just looked over and he's standing in, Jeff- in In Jeffrey Epstein is standing in Graydon Carter's office. Yeah. Wow. And it was really after that, that everything changed mm-hmm. that, you know, the next thing I knew, you know, I have Graydon Carter on tape, not intentionally, but because I was dealing with Jeffrey Epstein and, you know, it was back in the day, Virginia, you probably, we all had landlines mm, of course. <laughs> and I was recording, Jeffrey Epstein and the phone beeps and it's, I say hold on Jeffrey it happens to be Graydon mm. so I leave Jeffrey on hold I deal with Graydon and Graydon's saying you know Vicky I I, I maybe I believe him and I'm like what how can you believe him yeah maybe I believe him I'm Canadian then go back to Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> and it then um it was after that that I was told that the the women's story was being cut from the piece and that this was going to be a business story. And, you know, obviously I was beside myself. I burst into tears mm-hmm. in the office, which is not something I'm proud of, but it it's a reflection of what I really felt. It's the only
1: real response. Yeah.
0: Right. And And I then went back to the women and said, what do you want to do? And they said, this is exactly what we're afraid of, that, you know, He's Jeffrey Epstein. Who are we? Nobody knows who we are. And, you know, he's discredited us. And they didn't at that moment, they didn't want to fight on. So I didn't, you know, we we all between us, we all sort of left it alone. We stayed in touch.
1: And even as a business story, it obviously had to sand off the edges and fill in and leave some gray areas because his business and his you know trafficking operations and are connected uh, are connected yeah yes
0: and i mean i i mean for example, you know when i mean i think we all are, can see quite clearly now that someone who's been so busy um molesting young women um couldn't possibly be working in the normal sense.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Right. I know I've said this on the show before, but the huge revelation to me of the Harvey Weinstein, well, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein expose was he seemed to spend, forget about producing movies. He spent some sliver of his life jerking off into potted plants in front of movie stars and a huge amount of time covering his tracks calling calling the Mossad or whatever to to shake down the women that he was sexually harassing and abusing and assaulting and in Jeffrey Epstein's case we just saw that as part of the New York indictment a discovery that he had just gotten a massive shredder and some what tile and carpet extractors sent to right. him. I guess if you're destroying evidence that could include DNA and emails and whatever else, you you need a lot of material to like do demolition basically. I mean, incredible. Yeah. So the covering up. So as you said his office didn't have any of the Bloomberg terminals or anything that a no. you know, investor would have had in those days. So what do you finally make of this particular chapter?
0: Several things. So I think that in some ways what was striking about the indictment was it was so familiar, right? I mean, it wasn't like, oh, we went, oh, my goodness, how could Jeffrey Epstein have done any of that? Mm, What what was different about this was that finally, after knowing that this man is sick and a danger, finally, there is an appropriate reaction. And that, you know, it's because the culture has changed, the political environment has changed that clearly that the FBI felt emboldened to go after him again. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that um, several things in the indictment are very interesting. Uh, the use of the word conspiracy, mm-hmm. because that means that there are conspirators. And I think that it'll be very interesting to see what pressure is brought to bear on on this social circle that have protected him for so yeah. long. And you've got and you've got to figure that right now they're gonna protect them then that they're not gonna protect Jeffrey Epstein, they're gonna protect themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think the other thing that was really interesting was the fact that it wasn't just the FBI who brought the indictment. It was the public corruption unit.
1: Yes. Because so what do you make of that?
0: Well, because it's really hard, right? The, there are questions that have not been answered. The questions about his money have not been answered. And the, and the question as to why Alex, Alexander Costa did that sweetheart plea deal. Not noted back in 2008, where the victims weren't notified, shutting down the FBI investigation, leaving him to have this ridiculous 13 month cushy sentence where he was able to work and go for walks. What really happened there has not been answered. I've reported that Alexandra Acosta was told to let it go, Mm, yeah, um, from above. Now, I haven't said. Who above told him to let it go, and that Alexander Acosta was also told that Jeffrey Epstein belonged to the intelligence. Now, this, believe it or not, this is a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> Occasionally the intelligence agencies can swoop in and say that this person belongs to us, leave yes. him alone. Yeah. But but when someone is abusing underage women, mm-hmm. yeah. That is that is really hard to justify. Yes. Yes. And so I think you know, it does raise the question of were public officials bribed? Hmm. And, um, and so that's why my antennae, the public corruption unit, you know, I mean, it's, this is speculation on my part, but, but there are some really big gaping holes in this story that, that are yet to be filled in because Jeffrey Epstein has been untouchable. And and just because he's rich Mm -hmm. and just because he's well-connected doesn't explain it properly.
1: So if Acosta was told, let him alone because of intelligence and he met with the defense lawyers and the Kirkland and Ellis crowd, you know, help shut him down, it's analogous to you being shut down at, at Vanity Fair. It's, yeah. You know, you're working on something, you're uncovering things. It seems like Acosta was a little more willing to take take direction on this and not follow his conscience. But, you know, these stories could only go so far. And and there was coverage for Epstein in so many different realms so right before the show, we were talking about, you know, how did how did this Coney Island drop out? Sometimes they say that he almost or he was at NYU. No, he took some classes at NYU, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cooper Union. So he didn't even go to college. Then how did he sweet talk his way into Dalton, one of the most you know prestigious and difficult schools in the city to teach math? And then while there, befriend the son of Ace Greenberg everybody convinced that he was some, or telling the world that he, like the way that Jimmy Kane told you, that he's some kind of galaxy mind genius. I should admit that he and I had, you know, another enabling faction of the world here is Harvard University, which took $30 right. million dollars from this dropout as a science philanthropist. And as you said earlier, he took on his Gulfstreams, you know, the likes of Steven Pinker and Daniel Dennett and, uh, you know, obviously Alan Dershowitz um, and the whole crowd, my my agent, John Brockman, my former agent, um, had a group of the kind of intellectual dark web crowd who right. provided even sort of intellectual structure, some idea that they like to talk about men as being the real victims, especially if you're a handsome man in a Gulf Stream, like you certainly are the real victim, right? And right. it's it's the PC police who are hassling you about Your sex life and so on. And all that conspired to let this thing go on. And for that matter, enabled our president to get where he is. And I think a lot of us are really facing either what part we had in the in the enabling or, or how we missed it all. Or coming to having this reckoning with how cozy people in power had all gotten with each other. You know, Graydon Carter, I think your former colleague, Kim Masters, says she was covering Hollywood and she noticed that Graydon Carter at Vanity Fair had so many movie deals himself that all of a sudden he was reluctant to start right. doing the kind of hard-hitting stories that Vanity Fair used to do, and that's the kind of thing you saw that that this sort of I think I think Kim says they all these things got so knitted together, yeah, academics, Hollywood people, the Gulfstream plane industry, Teterboro Airport socialites, so that you would just you felt like Cassandra saying to them this guy looks like a monster. And everybody says, like Trump, oh, yeah, he likes he has a keen eye, as they put it in New York magazine, a keen eye for the ladies. I mean, how is that, a story? you know? So are you still working on the story? Yes. And you're back in touch. uh, You said very recently now back in touch with
0: I'm back in touch with everybody. (laughs) I'm ready to go because because I always felt not least because the, the the stories of the women were taken out. But I also felt that the financial piece of it was only half finished. So I'm rocking and rolling on this because right. I think that to your point, this is a story that tells a bigger story about yeah. the world in which we live and that really has to change.
1: One last thing. You've written the book that we've talked about before, Kushner Inc. You know Ivanka Trump's story very well. And recently, and this is entirely speculation, but because Ivanka Trump, alone among the Trump children, because her name shows up in Jeffrey Epstein's just infamous and nauseating black book that has the names of all his contacts yeah. and sort of girls upon girls, because her name is there, because Trump said they fell out, because there's some talk that Trump, you know, Trump obviously had made lecherous comments about his own daughter. Um, because she's in the Black Book, that Jeffrey Epstein might have had designs on Ivanka.
0: Unlikely. You think? Okay. Not only that, I, I have some idea as to why Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein fell out and it's not over Ivanka.
1: You want to tell us why?
0: I'll be coming back, Virginia. <laughs> okay,
1: good, good. Well, I fear for the people who get in your sights, but I'm also cheering you on from the sidelines. My guest has been Vicky Ward, the author of Kushner, Inc., and past and present stories about Jeffrey Epstein. Thanks for joining me, Vicki. Thank you, Virginia. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Let's thread it out on Twitter. I'm page 88. The show is at Real RealTrumpCast. And why stop there? Go over to slate.com slash TrumpCast Plus and become a Slate plus member. yes, yeah, sure. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad free for breadcrumbs a day, $35 for the first year. But more than that, you get the privilege of supporting all the great journalism we do at Slate. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.